We're going to, this morning, look at a passage, the next passage in our study of Luke's Gospel, that looks at how we can be involved in our mission. Now, your mission may well be that the Lord sends you to the ends of the earth. It may well be that the Lord uh, gives you a, a vision for some foreign mission field, but, but the way that the Lord described it uh, when he returned to heaven was that you begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. In other words, we start where we live and then we reach the people who are like us. And then once we've reached the people who live near us and the people who are like us, we can reach out to the people who perhaps are unlike us and, and who perhaps find some things that are distasteful about us, like the Samaritans would of the Jewish people. We're going to look at that a little bit next week. And then if we can reach people like us and people near us and people unlike us and people who are suspicious of us, then we can go anywhere. So how do we begin how do we learn the ways of Jesus in reaching out with the good news of Jesus to the people in our friendship group, those who are our work colleagues, those who are in our family, those permanent relationships in our lives, uh, our family relationships, those long-term friendships are often the relationships that we find it most difficult to share our faith in. Well, this morning, we're going to learn the strategy of Jesus. And so I ask you to open in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, and we'll start there. And whilst you're doing that, I'll get the whiteboard. How about that? We've got little, um, got little tape marks on the floor down here that I've got to somehow get this thing organised into. And we'll see if I can make it or not. What about that, eh? Pretty good. Not bad. Let's, um, let's look at Luke chapter 10. I'll read a significant portion of the chapter. Uh, and then I'll pause and make some expository comments. And then we'll look at another portion of this chapter. It's important that we really get a hold of what it is that God is saying to us today. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a house, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom 
than for that town. So I've got, uh, I've got six points to this sermon. That could cause some to shudder. <laughs> Three is normally enough. We've got six points, and all of them begin with the same letter, because I'm a preacher, and that's the only way I can think. Now, what was the next bit? I know, yeah, that one. So we've got team, timing, target, task, tension, whoops, that sounds tricky, and triumph. We all like that. So let's look at this text and let's get to understand what it is that Jesus is wanting to teach us. I first encountered this strategy when we were in a terrible situation in the inner city of London. Sally and I were young church leaders replanting a church in the inner city in a poor area of London at the time called Brixton. And uh, when we were there, we were able to gather a team of missionaries to help us. And um, everything was going great. There was some opposition from the local media who wanted to kind of promote opposition against us and, and various other things. But somehow we were, we were toughing it out and continuing on until the day came when an accusation came to one of the missionary team that were with us that they had abused some teenage boys within the congregation. And that accusation appeared to be accurate and correct. The parents, of course, were seeking help from the authorities and were taking it through the appropriate process of legal accusations and defences. It was a terrible time, a time of soul-searching, a time of really having to deal with the Lord as to what it was that we were being called into because it seemed as though we were completely unprepared for these circumstances. I can remember praying around the area and getting to a point of utter desperation and asking the Lord, what was his plan? And I remember him saying very clearly to me, one of the few times in my life when I've been conscious of the Lord speaking to me audibly, and perhaps the reason that he did it on that occasion was because of the heart-rending that I was going through at the time, thinking about these young men that were in our congregation who were exposed to such predatory behaviour. And I remember the Lord saying to me, what did the early church do? And I, I thought, well, I'm not sure. And I felt as though the Lord was prompting me to remember my church history lessons from seminary, not lessons that I would normally draw upon. And I went back and filed through them in my mind. And I remembered that the early church was accused of all kinds of different things. Incest, because there was love between brothers and sisters. Cannibalism, because they ate their leaders in worship. The body and blood of their leaders was being consumed on, on every occasion. And anti-authoritarian behaviour, because they had a king other than Caesar. And all of these, all of these um, uh, preposterous 
accusations were used as a means of persecuting the church in the public proclamations of Caesar and his Senate. And I remember that the church continued to grow. At the time, it was difficult because the analysis of the census that had been taken at different times in the Roman Empire had not revealed really how many people had come to Christ during this time. But a man called Rodney Stark in recent years has done all of the analysis of the population and the movements and the changes that were taking place through the first 250 years of the church's life. And his assessment, one of the great sociologists of our time, his assessment is that more than 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christians by the time of Constantine. Within 250 years, the majority of people in the Roman Empire had become Christians during times of the most terrible and brutal persecution. And of course, that's one of the things that, that we can be in some ways joyful about as we think of the terrible privations and difficulties that our brothers and sisters are suffering in India. The Lord somehow is able to use the blood of the martyrs as the seed of the church. But you see, I looked at that and I thought, I know that that's true, but I don't know how the Lord did it. You see, I wanted to know how he did it. And it was no good somebody saying, it was the Holy Spirit. Of course it was the Holy Spirit. It was no good people saying to me, it was the grace of God. I know it's the grace of God. I want to know how the grace of God was operating. I want to know how the Holy Spirit was functioning. And I felt the Lord say, read the New Testament again. Read the Gospels again. And so I went back and I, I poured over the Scriptures. And as I began to pour over them, I, rem I, I remember the feeling of, of realizing that for the first time, I was reading from a perspective that I'd never read before. I was reading from the perspective of trying to understand how the church did evangelism in a period of such intense persecution. And from that perspective, I began to have a dawning revelation. A dawning revelation that has now become called the person of peace strategy. And uh, lots of people have taught it and lots of people have shared it around the world. But now pretty much every mission agency around the world uses it. And it's, it's a, a, of some interest to me that it was during that time of, of a personal struggle and soul searching that, that such a revelation was, was born. In Matthew 10 and in Mark 6, you see the 12 being sent out. In fact, at the beginning of, of Luke chapter 9, we didn't look at it together because I knew we were going to get to Luke chapter 10. In Luke 9, the 12 are sent out and they're sent out on an identical mission to the mission that has been, that has been uh, articulated here in, in chapter 10 that the 72 are sent on. They're sent out in pairs. They're sent out at a particular time. They're sent out to look for a particular person. And in looking for a particular person, they're supposed to stay in their home, in their household. The Greek word oikos, suggesting their household, suggesting their network of relationships. They were to find a household and they were to stay in that household, not going from household to household, but staying in one place as their headquarters, if you like, and there they were to demonstrate the signs of the kingdom and to share the gospel of the kingdom, telling the people that the kingdom of God was near. 
Well, this strategy, of course, was the strategy given to the 12. And of course, there's always the suggestion that if it's the 12 that have this strategy, it's not available to the rank and file Christians like me and you. Because although we identify with Peter, although we identify with Andrew, we look at him and we think, I don't know, maybe they were a bit more special than us. Now, I don't think they were, but there's often that question in our minds. But here are the 72, they're not even mentioned by name. They're just disciples. They're just people like you and me. And it was a shocking realization that the 72 were sent out with an identical strategy. And so what was this strategy? Well, the strategy was to go out in a team. The smallest indivisible unit in the kingdom is two. The smallest indivisible unit in the kingdom is two. It is only in the most extraordinary circumstances that God sends one person. Maybe, maybe he sends Philip at the, re, at the re, request and call of an angel to a man in the middle of the desert. Sure, that may be an individual task. But almost on every occasion, as the writer to Ecclesiastes tells us in the Old Testament, two are better than one. If one falls down, another can pick him up. Jesus sends a team and not individuals. So think about your mission to your work colleagues. Think about your mission to your family. Think about your mission to your friends. Who is your team? Who's the person, who's the partner who's gonna share with you, who's gonna pray with you, who's gonna long for the same people that you long for to know Jesus? The reason so often that we fail is not because of a lack of desire, but simply a lack of support. We're there and we're blown around by the circumstances because there's no one else to remind us that there's an anchor that holds the soul. All of us by ourselves find it difficult to stand. And so Jesus makes it clear that as he sends out the 12 and the 72, he sends them out as a team. Who's your team? Who's your team that's gonna help you invite people to the Christmas Eve service here on, uh, on Christmas Eve, surprisingly, um, at 5.30? Who's the team? Don't kind of get all your courage together and go and do it by yourself. Go with somebody. And if you can't go with them, at least have someone pray with you. It's always a team. There's always a timing. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Now, he says that on numerous occasions, but he doesn't say it about every situation and every circumstance. He says of Nazareth that he couldn't do very much there. He could only lay his hands on a few and, and heal them. He couldn't do any great work of the kingdom in Nazareth because their timing had not yet come. Now we know by the time of the second century that there were whole groups of Christians in Nazareth because they turned the synagogue into a church. We know that to be true. But the timing was not right for the people in Nazareth when Jesus was sending out his disciples. 
But when Jesus is sending out the 72 ahead of him, Jesus, remember, has left Galilee and is facing towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards the primary objective of his goal of going to Jerusalem and dying to save humanity. And as he, as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, there are many places that he's going to go to. And he wants those places to be prepared. And so he sends out the 72 as a kind of early, early spiritual strike force, if you like. He sends them ahead of him. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. In, in John chapter 4, verse 35 and following, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on another occasion uh, when he's been speaking to a woman that they're shocked that he would be speaking to. A Samaritan woman by, by a well in the middle of the day which indicates that perhaps she's not a savoury character. And Jesus says to his disciples, open your eyes, guys. The fields are ready for harvest. We need to open our eyes, we need to look up and we need to see where the, the winds of change are moving. We need to see where the seasons in people's lives are turning and their responsiveness is changing. It's amazing how many times when we meet in the morning to pray here every day, how many times people say, do you know, I've been praying for that person for an awful long time and now they seem to be responsive. The timing is so important. The seasons will change. And we need to be responsive to the timing in people's lives. You may be on a mountaintop, but someone somewhere is in a valley. And because they're in a valley, God is preparing them to receive a message that will bring light into their darkness. It may well be that you have this eruptive joy in your life as you celebrate with family and friends during this Christmas time, but there are others who are going through an earthquake and their life is in upheaval and they're being shaken to the very core and this is the moment when God is preparing their hearts, often hard and flinty hearts, broken by circumstances that perhaps they've even inflicted on themselves. And here is the moment when the season changes. The season turns. The season opens up to a time that will lead to harvest. Are you even watching? Jesus says, open your eyes and look. So there's a team, there's a time, there's a target. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't send his disciples to preach on street corners. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, now then fellas, this is how you build a soapbox and, uh, and this is how you project your voice in public. Doesn't do any of that. He says, I want you to go and look for one person. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's no greater work than sharing the faith. Amen. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. 
So what are we doing as we share our faith? Are we being those unpleasant kind of aggressive types who sit next to you on a plane and your heart sinks because you think, oh no, these next two or three hours are going to be miserable. And you're a Christian. I mean, what must it be like if you're going to hell? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. It's great to share your faith. It's great to share your testimony. But discover, discover whether there is a welcome. Jesus says, if they welcome you, if they don't welcome you, if they welcome you, say peace be with you. I find this fascinating. Basically what Jesus says is, if they welcome you, say, hi, how are you doing? Which is an odd thing to say to his disciples, isn't it? Because peace be with you is the standard greeting of an average Jewish person. It's kind of shalom. And so, you know, you go to the supermarket and you go shalom and you go to the, you know, the coffee shop shalom and you meet people in the street shalom and it's just like, you know, how are you doing? What about if somebody actually received your peace and you said, peace be with you and you go, wow, that person, because they go, thanks, that was great. It's just exactly what I needed. Now, maybe you weren't expecting that. Maybe, you know, when you're in the supermarket and you say, how are you doing? And they say, well, you know, I got up this morning, I wasn't doing really well, but now I'm doing a lot better. And seeing you, it's really, uh, it's really encouraging me. Thanks very much for asking. Now, you're not really expecting that response. And quite honestly, if you did get that response, you'd probably try to get out there quite quickly, wouldn't you? Because <laughs> it seems a little bit over the top. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, when you use your familiar way of greeting, which has all kinds of religious overtones, it actually means the Lord's blessing bring you every kind of wholeness and happiness in your life. That's what shalom means. When people receive that from you as a gift and as a blessing from God, then you know that you're being welcomed. In other words, if someone looks at you and sees you as God's representative and they welcome you into their life, then you know that they are a person of peace, says Jesus. So we're not looking for the greatest trophy of grace who's the most aggressively atheistic person at work. God will bring them around slowly but surely. You're looking for the person who likes you. How about that? You're looking for the person who listens to you, says Jesus. If they listen to you, you're looking for a person who serves you. Now, here's a shock. Jesus says, when you find a person of peace, stay with them, eating whatever they set before you. Now, what's going through the minds of the disciples is, what if they're a Gentile? What if it's pork? What if it's wiggly stuff on the plate that I don't like eating? What if it's still alive? Jesus says, look, the people I prepare 
The people that the Spirit of God is preparing are the people that I want you to share with and it's not up to you who they are. They could be the person that you least expect. They could be the person who has been aggressively anti-Christian up until now. They could be a person who's been anti and aggressively so to other people, but somehow they're open to you. This is the person of peace, says Jesus. And they are the target. They're the person that you're to focus on. You're not to look at the crowd. You're to look for the individual. You're not to be crowd conscious. You're to be, you're to be person focused. I was in the backyard uh, in that same uh, church and uh, a young man who, um, who later would have been one of those young people who were abused. He was shouting to me over the fence. Now in England they call pastors vicars. And so he's shouting out, Oi, vicar! Oi! Now I've got this uh, demonized lawnmower that won't work if you stop it. You know one of these things that you get going and then if you stop it, it won't start again. You know, like so I've got this thing going and, it's, and I'm thinking, I'm not, if I let it go and go and talk to him, it's not going to work and you know, the yard's all you know, wild animals in the grass. I mean, it's crazy out there. So, uh, so, and he won't give up. He won't stop. And so eventually I, I let the mower go and I know that I'm never going to be able to mow that day. So I go over to him and I say, how are you doing? He says, I'm fine. I just want to say hello. <laughs> well, the next day when I got the mower going again, I, uh, and he came out again. And I'm thinking, this kid, I'm going to kill him. After the third time, I went into the house and I said to Sally, so what's the rule about murder? And she said, do you think he might be that person that you're talking about in church, you know, that, that new study that you've been doing on the person of peace? And I went, <laughs> I'm so wicked and sinful, I'm so sorry, God. So the next day, I went out into the yard and I mowed the yard, no kid. The day after I went out in the yard, mowed the yard, no kid. Now the yard doesn't need mowing, it's bald. But I'm still out there hoping that this kid's gonna return because obviously the mower going on is the signal to my person of peace that they're supposed to come out. I think it was about four days later, the kid hobbledy hobs along the fence and I stopped there and I go over and say, hi, what, what's happened? He said, I got run over by a truck. I said, okay, well, you and I need to talk real soon then. And so we began chatting and it was amazing. You know, they like you. Well, obviously, you know, he liked me enough to keep on coming back, even with a broken leg. He had a plaster on his leg and he was, had crutches and he, he, he wanted to listen, he wanted to talk. And then this is what he said. He said, um, he said, you've got to, he said, you've got to like a little band at church, haven't you? I said, yeah. He said, you know, like, you've got a drummer, haven't you? I said, yeah. He said, you've got a guitarist? I said, yeah. He said, I'm learning to play the guitar. I said, oh. You know, in my mind I'm thinking, not a chance, buddy. <laughs> not a chance. And he said, um, he said, what time do they practice? It, there was no kind of can I. What time do they practice? 
I said, oh, it's real early, real. I mean, you probably have never seen that time on a Sunday morning. He said, yeah, it's okay, what time is it? I said, 7.30, he said, I'll be there at seven. I said, oh, so, you know, what kind of guitar have you got? He said, oh, I, I, I don't have a guitar of my own yet. I, I just practice at school, but, but I'm gonna buy one this weekend. And he says, and I'm gonna be a professional guitarist one day. I'm a musical prodigy. I'm thinking, he's a nut. Well, of course, what I didn't know was he was a musical prodigy and that he was gonna become a professional guitarist and he was gonna go to the Royal College of Music and learn who knows how many instruments and actually one day be the operations manager of that church. Because he came to church that Sunday became a believer immediately and led his brothers and sisters to Christ within a couple of weeks. Now, now here's the thing, now here's the thing. I'm in this really, really difficult environment. Sally and I are looking out on this kind of, on this sea of unsaved humanity and you're thinking, where on earth do we start? You start with the person of peace. That's the target. And what's the task? The task is simple. Do the works of the kingdom and share the gospel of the kingdom, which is that the kingdom is near. The king is near. One of the things that people truly do not believe in our world today is that if there is a God, that he's very near me. They think that somehow he might be some kind of benevolent character, a bit like Santa Claus, but a long way off. They don't think of God being near them. Jesus says, tell them the kingdom of God is near. And then he says this, he says, if you go to a town and are not welcomed, then don't hang around and seek counseling for rejection. Don't do that. Don't struggle with the fact that people don't like you, that you're not approved of or accepted. Simply recognize that this is not the time or the place and you don't want any of that memory to stick to you. And so you wipe the dust off your feet. What great advice that would be to our children at school, on social media. How often we wrestle with whether we're liked, with whether we're really accepted and embraced. Jesus says, I am most certainly preparing a harvest of people who like you and who listen to you and who want to serve you. And the problem for us most often is we're looking at the people who reject us. And maybe we're even praying for the people that reject us. There's nothing wrong with praying for the people that reject us, of course. But if that means that our entire focus is focused in a place where we will never find satisfaction, in building a relationship that leads to 
kingdom life and growth, then it is an incredibly dissatisfying life that we're setting ourselves to live in and to, and to seek after. What the Lord says quite simply is this, don't hang on to rejection. If they don't want to know, then don't worry, somebody will. It's incredibly helpful advice. Now, it's incredibly helpful advice in all areas of relationship building because of course, this is the relationship strategy of Jesus because it's relationship that leads to salvation. It's relationship that leads to a person being able to hear and understand the message of salvation. And so the relationship strategy of Jesus is to be understood in all areas of our life. And it would be of enormously good counsel to each one of us to bear in mind what it is that Jesus says here. If people don't welcome you, don't worry about it. There will be people who do. So if there's tension, don't, don't focus on the tension. Don't battle with the tension. Step away and avert your eyes from those who reject you and look for the faces that welcome you. If we were to continue in our reading, we would discover some other things that Jesus wants to say. Let's just read from verse 17 as the 72 return. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. You think to yourself, awesome. Awesome. I'm that awesome. But Jesus says, that's not where the triumph is. That's not where the triumph is. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Of course they do. You're going in my name. How could they do anything else? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. You know, it's one thing to please your spouse. It's another thing to please your parents. It's another thing entirely to please your children, your family, your friends. Imagine pleasing Jesus to the point that he overflows with joy. Jesus stands to make intercession before the Father on our behalf every moment of every day. But imagine that in the midst of that intercession, his heart is so full of joy because of something that we're doing. Wouldn't that make your day to know that? Surely it would. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It's good to understand doctrine. It's good to have a theological framework. It's good to know your Bible. But being wise and learned doesn't make Jesus happy. Doesn't cause him to be full of joy through the Holy Spirit. The thing that causes Jesus to be full of joy through the Holy Spirit is that we have a childlike attitude to what it is that he says and what he calls us to do. And surely all of us could do that. You've hidden this from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. You know what? I think revelation's way more important than information. Anybody agree? You know, information's great. I mean, I've spent my whole life. I've got, I've got lots of theological degrees. I'm an adjunct professor at all of these famous seminaries. I'm doing this PhD that drives me mad. You know, it's not as important. It's important, but it's nothing like, it's, it's like, it's like the difference between a little bump on the ground in Mount Everest in terms of importance. It's nothing like as important as revelation. And revelation is given to little children, childlike people. And this is how he finishes. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. The thing that gives God pleasure and Jesus joy is that we live as little children relying on the revelation of God. Anybody believe that? So, as we think about Christmas Eve, just a couple of days from now, who are your people of peace? Who are your people of peace? Who are the people who like you, listen to you, welcome you? As you think about Alpha starting in the new year, as you think about people who could really, really do with discovering something about Jesus and learning how they can follow him and, and, and learning how they can be folded into God's family amongst your contacts and connections, who is it? that is the person of peace. Maybe it's the annoying person that won't leave you alone. Maybe you're looking for somebody else who's cooler. But that annoying person is probably the one, if you had eyes to see, would have neon letters above their head saying, person of peace. I don't know who that person is, but I know that God wants one for each one of us. Who is it? Shall we pray about that now? And ask the Lord that he reveals to us who our person of peace is. The person 
that we can invite at Christmas, a person that we can bring to Alpha with us in the new year. Let's pray. And as you pray, the Lord says that it's little children who received this revelation. So let's ask for revelation. Maybe there's a face. Maybe there's a person, their name. Maybe it's somebody you've not met yet. Just allow the Lord to give you that revelation now. Lord, we thank you that you have created us in Christ Jesus for good works. And we thank you, Lord, that the work that will last for eternity is the work of sharing our faith and seeing others come to know you. And so we pray, Lord, for that good work in our life. And we thank you, Lord, that you've prepared it all in advance for us. Thank you, Lord, that the people of peace are not people that we've produced or created. Thank you, Lord, that it's not because we're likable or lovable that you've made them, but it's simply, Lord, your gracious and sovereign work in the lives of people around us. Lord, give us eyes to see. Show us, Lord, where the harvest is ripening in particular people's lives. Lord, those who perhaps are in the valley overshadowed by the darkness. Lord, those who are shaken by the earthquakes of life and their usual way of understanding their life has been, has been shaken too. Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, not only prepare the people of peace, but show us who they are. And give us, Lord, freedom. Give us, Lord, joyful abandon in creating just the opportunities and the conversations. Lord, help us to reach these people that you're preparing. And Lord, help us to bring them to the Christmas services. Help us, Lord, to bring them to Alpha. Help us, Lord, to invite them to our house church. Help us, Lord, to share the scriptures with them. And may we, Lord, know the joy of causing you to overflow with joy in the Holy Spirit. And we pray it, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. And all God's people say,